Well, for those of you that were here last week, know we're in a series about blockbuster questions, answering some of those big questions. And the movie Noah, for all of its faults, does talk about the question on if God, why evil? And we're excited to have Sean McDowell here this morning with us to be able to share about that. Uh, Sean is a Talbot grad. He's recently finishing up his PhD at Southern uh, in worldview studies, and he has written about 10 books, actually co-authored some with his dad, Josh, because Josh was running out of ideas for books after like 100. Um, And uh, so he's been helping him out there. He now teaches at Biola University in the apologetics program. He also is the head of the Bible department at CVCS. He married his high school sweetheart, Stephanie. They have three kids. They come over every week for family dinner because I married his sister. So please welcome... (laughs) Sean McDowell this morning to come and share with us. Well, good morning. It's a treat to be a part of your Got Question series. And let's face it, when we think about questions that believers and non-believers have, there's really no question more pressing than why is there evil And why do we suffer? I mean, that's the perennial question. Yesterday, I was in Boston speaking at a men's conference. And a guy came up to me afterwards. He said, I have a question. He goes, how could God allow this evil and suffering to happen to my family? In fact, what's interesting, as you talk to a lot of non-believers, as you get down to the heart of the issue, this is often what it is. In fact, Albert Einstein... (laughs) who famously said God doesn't play dice with the universe and saw that his science pointed towards God, the reason he couldn't believe in a personal God is because of evil. Charles Darwin, he was not an agnostic because of the theory of evolution. It was the premature death of his daughter. And today a professor at UNC, Bart Ehrman, who's probably done more to attack the Christian faith than anybody alive, when it gets down to it, he said, quote, Even though he's a textual critic in the Bible, he said, I left the faith for what I took to be and still take to be an unrelated reason, the problem of suffering in the world. But this isn't a question that non-believers ask. I think every single one of us in this room have asked this question. I mean, the prophet Habakkuk said, how long, O Lord, must I cry out for help and you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? So the other difficulty with this question is I'm not going to be able to stand up here in 30 minutes, give you some pointers, and you walk out and say, I got it. The problem has been solved. It doesn't work that way. Because it's not just something that deals in our minds, it's something we've experienced in our heart. Those of you who know Maribel, I mean, that's something you feel, the tragedy of what happened to her. I'll never forget, we have three kids, 10, 7, and my son Shane, who's one. And we were trying for our third. And we went at about 12 weeks to get our first ultrasound. And I'll never forget just a, a few words the doctor spoke. She said, we can't find the heartbeat. And I just, I, I sat there and I was stunned. And my wife looked at each other. And she had a miscarriage. And we just cried and felt it. So as we talk about this question this morning, I hope we all realize that it's not something we can solve like a geometrical problem, you know, a question in math. This is the 
question in a sense that it boils down to. And realize this isn't a question that only Christians have to answer. Every worldview has to give a solution or a response to the problem of evil. The question is, which is the one that's most intellectually and emotionally satisfying? That's the question. When I graduated from high school, I spent a year traveling with... with, Actually, graduated from college in 98. I took a year traveling with my dad. And I had just taken this class at Biola University with J.P. Moreland. Great philosopher, great apologist. And I learned how to answer all these tough questions that would come up. So I was just eager for non-believers to talk to you because I was ready with an answer. So I'm about 21 years old and I'm in Breckenridge, Colorado with, with my dad. And I went in to get my hair cut. And I was sitting there and I pulled out a book. I was reading it and I walked up. The lady who's going to cut my hair. She goes, oh, that looks like an interesting book. She said, are you a Christian? I said, yes, I am. She said, well, do you mind if I ask you a question? I said, I said, no, I don't mind at all. Inside, I'm thinking, yes, I got this. She goes, well, if God is so good, why would God allow evil? And to my shame, my first thought was, that's all you got? I said, well, it, well, you can't have evil without good. The fact that you're asking this question assumes there's a standard of good, and if there's good, there has to be God. I said, it's not us who do it. By the way, it's, it, it's not God who does it. God gives us free will. And we do evil. Did God want us to be robots? And she asked a question. Bam, I shot it down. All of a sudden, she's cutting my hair. She steps back and she says, this is a bunch of expletive. I'll let you, your imagination fill in. She said, you have an answer for everything. It can't be that simple. And she's crying while she's cutting my hair, which made me really nervous because she had scissors to my head. So I apologized and I remember leaving. I said to my friend, I was like, man, what is up with her? We're having a great conversation. You know, you can tell the typical male, no idea of the female's emotions. Fortunately, I've come a little ways. I said, what's up with her? I mean, gosh, we're having a conversation. He looked at me, he goes, do you have any idea how insensitive and arrogant you were? And I just sat there and I thought, my goodness, I was. See, I, whenever this issue comes up from a young person or from anybody, rather than shooting down with a quick answer, I always respond back and say, gosh, that's a great question. Of all the questions you can ask about God, why that one? Because oftentimes when people ask, why is there evil and suffering? They're not looking for this intellectual solution. They've seen pain. They've experienced pain. And they want to know where God is amidst their suffering. So I actually break it down into two areas that might be helpful. When we talk about the problem of evil, the first part to think about is the emotional problem. We've suffered. We've felt pain. We've had evil done to us. Maybe we've felt guilt from the evil that we've done to other people. And the question is, how do we deal with that? Well, this is not a counseling session, but there's a powerful passage in the Bible that I think helps us out. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. In other words, when somebody's suffering, suffer with them. When somebody's happy, be happy with them. You see, Job's friends did everything right. You know that, right? Job lost his home, lost his reputation, lost his family, lost his money. His friends show up and they did everything right until they opened up their mouths. They sat there with him for a week and mourned with him. 
And then they open their mouths, they start to blame them, and they mess it all up. So I might encourage us as we start on this issue, is when somebody's suffering, the Christian response is to hurt with them. And sometimes when somebody's hurting, putting a quick Bible verse on it can be the least helpful thing that we can do. It's our presence and our love and our care and just being there that often helps people through pain like that. Like my daughter, she's seven. When she hurts her knee and she comes running up to, well, mommy and then maybe daddy second, she goes, daddy, my knee hurts. I don't take her and say, well, honey, it's because God gave you nerve endings and, but the platelets are going to clog it up. Don't worry, it's in control. Is that what she wants? No, she wants a hug and she wants a kiss and maybe some hot chocolate and she wants to be told it's going to be okay. Right? Well, that's a human instinct that we have. So it's important as we look at this question, again, it's not just one we can just solve and move on our way. It's the perennial question. And we have to remember that people are hurting. And as Christians, one of the most powerful things we can do is hurt with people when they hurt. But the question we're going to go a little deeper is the philosophical question. Intellectually, how can a good God allow evil? But right away when I hear this, I remember the first time I was reading C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. How many of you read Mere Christianity? I'm just curious. Okay, look at everybody who hasn't and give them a bad look. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) The first part of that book, when I read something, it turned, it was like a game changer of how I thought about this question. Because C.S. Lewis was an atheist for a long time. I mean, he was one of the leading scholars of his day at Oxford University. He was an atheist. And one of the reasons he was an atheist was because of evil and suffering. In fact, he said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how would I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see what C.S. Lewis is saying? He's saying, as an atheist, he was looking at the world saying, this is unjust, there can't be a God. But then the thought dawned on him. He said, wait a minute. If I'm calling something unjust, that means there must first be a standard of justice. And there can't be an objective standard of justice unless there's a God. So Lewis started to realize, if I complain about the world not being the way I want it to be, that means there is a way that the world is supposed to be, which means there's design and there's purpose and there must be a mind or a God behind it. So ironically, when somebody raises the problem of evil, it's actually one of the best philosophical arguments that there must, in fact, be a God. So what, what is evil? Typically, people will think of evil. I was getting my hair cut again. I don't know why all these stories go around getting my hair cut. I was getting my hair cut, and the, and the guy cutting my hair started having a conversation with the girl next to me. And she, they started talking about evil, this very question. And he said, you know, I think evil's like yin-yang, kind of in certain Eastern religions, like in Taoism, how in everything there are two equal and opposite forces. Right? You have good and you have evil, and they're equal opposite forces. I chimed in. I said, I don't think that's what evil is. In fact, I think that's a misunderstanding if you just reflect upon the nature of evil. See, think about it this way. Evil is parasitic upon good. Evil is parasitic upon good. What do I mean? 
You can only have a parasite if you first have what? If you have a host to support the parasite. So think about truth and lies. Which one is the host in terms of truth and lies? Truth is. And which one is parasitic? Lies. So you can have truth without someone telling a lie. But you can't have a lie unless there's first a standard of truth. So truth and lies are not equal opposite forces. Rather, truth is basic and a lie is twisting that which is true. So think about it this way. Take a wrench, right? You have an original design to a wrench. What happens when a wrench goes bad? It gets what? It gets, it gets rusty. Right? Now you can only have a rusted wrench if you first have an original design and pure metal to get rusted. Right? Another example, take healthy teeth. Now some of you know where this is going. Let me just spare you something. Don't ever, ever, ever Google tooth decay. I have taken one for the team and done it for you. Now, a bunch of you are like, now you're going to do it, right? It's like saying, don't think of a pink elephant. What do you think of? A pink elephant. Well, think about it. When teeth go bad, you get tooth decay, right? But you can only have tooth decay. That one's mild, trust me. That's mild. In fact, I actually went over this morning at the children's... No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. You can only have decay if you first have healthy teeth. So in a sense, what evil is, is a corruption of good. So you can't have a corruption unless there's first something that is good. Now, when it comes to moral values, you can't have real evil. And I appreciate this morning, it was mentioned, Shannon, right? Shannon said, we, there really is such a thing as evil. Well, if there really is such a thing as evil, then there really is such a thing as good. And if there really is such a thing as good, then there has to be a God to ground it. One of my friends, Christopher Hitch, one of my friends, Frank Turk, was debating the late atheist Christopher Hitchens. And Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called um, God is Not Great. He was a British atheist. He died a year or two ago. He was brilliant. He was debating my friend Frank Turk over morality. And Christopher Hitchens rails religion for causing all this evil and suffering and terrible things in the world. And Frank Turk, he said, wait a minute. He said, as an atheist, you're critiquing my religion for being immoral. But within atheism, you don't even have a standard for morality itself. You're borrowing from my religion to turn around and critique me. He said, Christopher, you sit on God's lap to slap him in the face. Now, he can get away with saying that because he's from Jersey. (laughs) But if we just take a step back and define what evil is, we realize that at least intellectually and philosophically, it means there must be good. And if there's a real standard of good, there must be a God. But here's the problem of evil stated clearly by Sam Harris, who's another well-known influential atheist today. Here's what he said. He said, if God exists, either he can do nothing to stop the most egregious calamities or he does not care to. God, therefore, is either impotent or evil. There is another possibility, of course, and it is both the most reasonable and least odious. The biblical God is a fiction like Zeus and the thousands of other dead gods who most sane beings now ignore. That is the problem of evil stated succinctly. 
And if you put in premises, it would look like this. If God is all-powerful, he can stop evil. How many of you believe God is all-powerful? Let me see your hands. Okay. If God is all good, he would want to stop evil. How do you believe God is all good? Third, evil exists. So therefore, an all-powerful, all-good God does not. Now, the only way to avoid that conclusion is to show that one of those premises is false. Now, the Eastern religion, Buddhism and Hinduism, their response is to look at number three and say, no, actually evil doesn't exist. It's an illusion. There is no evil and suffering is not real. I don't know about you, but to me, that doesn't match up with the world as I know it and I see it and I experience it. That's not a live option. So the question is, if God is all-powerful, he can stop evil. If God is all-powerful, he can stop evil. So I got a question for you. How do you believe when we say God is all-powerful that God can do anything? Let me see your hands. You believe God can do anything? How do you say, no, there's things God cannot do? Let me see your hands. How do you say, man, this is Sunday morning. You're really making me think. This is still early. Okay, all right. So if God is all-powerful, can God tell a lie? No, now you're shaking your head. Most of you said God could do anything. Can God be tempted? It actually says in Hebrews, it's impossible for God to lie. Timothy tells us God cannot be tempted. So it seems there are certain things that God can do and certain things God can't do. So you might be sitting there going, wait a minute, now I'm confused. You're telling me that God can't tell a lie, but you can tell a lie. Does that make you and me more powerful than God? That's something we can do that God can't. No, it's actually the reverse. You know what it is? It's because God is so perfect, he can't tell a lie. Telling a lie is not a strength. It's a weakness. God can't be tempted because he is perfectly good. See, people often say, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? Or as Bart Simpson said one time, can God make a burrito so big he can't eat it? (laughs) So if you say, no, God can't do it, then what happens? You've limited God. If you say, yes, God can do it, then also what happens? You've limited God. Either way, God's limited. Well, here's the key. Classically, theologians have wrestled with the question of what it means that God is all-powerful for centuries. And what they've said is God can do anything that is logically possible that is consistent with his moral nature. So God cannot make a burrito so big he can't eat it because that's an illogical, incoherent request. It's like saying one thing I'll often do, but I won't, is I'll take out a paper clip. And I'll give somebody a million dollars. I'll give you a million dollars. I'll make that offer today. If you can take a paperclip and show me, you can bend it into a square circle. (laughs) Million dollars. Now, who wants to try it? No one. Usually, high school students, there's usually at least one freshman who's like, I can do it. I'll try it. You're not even going to try it because you know such a thing can't exist. Now, what if I go get our old governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, 
and bring him up here and go, gosh, he is so strong. Could he turn a paperclip into a square circle? No. You can't have a square circle because in itself it's impossible. It doesn't matter how much strength you have because that thing cannot be done. So even God can't make a square circle. That's not a limitation on God. That's a recognition that a square circle in itself is incoherent. So yes, God is all-powerful, and he can stop evil, and he will stop evil. But here's the question. Can God make human beings who genuinely have free will and then force us and determine that we always do that which is right? God can't, can he? If God's going to allow us to love, he has to allow us to choose not to love. If God's going to allow us to show mercy, he's got to choose to allow us to not show mercy. And God thought it was worth creating beings who can love, who can choose, who can have a relationship. Even though with that came the reality that some would choose evil. Avon Plantinga, arguably the greatest living Christian philosopher, one of the top philosophers in the world, he said, a world containing creatures who are significantly free is more valuable, all else being equal, than a world containing no free creatures at all. Then a world... Now God can create free creatures, but he can't cause or determine them to only do what is right. For if he does so, then they aren't significantly free after all. To create creatures capable of moral good, therefore he must create creatures capable of moral evil. And he can't give these creatures the freedom... I'll go back. He can't give these creatures the freedom to do that which is good without also allowing them to do that which is evil. God, yes, God is all-powerful and he can stop evil. But even God can't create beings who are genuinely free and then determine that they always do good. So here's the next question. If God is all-good... Why would he allow there to be suffering? If God is all good, why would he allow there to be pain? Why would God allow there to be evil? Doesn't this call God's goodness into question? If you saw evil, you stop it. Yet God sees evil and he doesn't. How can God be good and allow some of the things in the world to happen? Well, I'll tell you this. I don't know all of God's reasons for what he does. The only way we could know that is if, in fact, God tells us. But the question is, do we see hints and do we see reasons why God could still be good and allow there to be evil? And I think we do. I have a friend who got perfect SAT scores on math in high school. And I talked to him about God for about 10 years. And he had no interest whatsoever. It was like water on the back of a duck, just kind of, you know, didn't stick at all. Now, one day he called me seemingly out of the blue. He said, hey, Sean, you teach your students how to you know, answer tough questions, right? I said, yes. He said, well, how do you know God exists? I said, okay, like, time out. I'm happy to help you, but why are you asking me right now? He told me on the phone, he said, well, my brother, who was 15 at the time, had gotten cancer. And he said, quote, 
It has shaken me up to my own mortality. Maybe God allows evil. Maybe he allows suffering. Because he has eternity in mind. And knows that that's what gets our attention. To stop and think about the things that matter most. One of the great scientists of our day is named Francis Collins. And Francis Collins helped map the genome under President Bill Clinton. And he was an atheist. He was an ardent atheist. In fact, what started to change his mind was not the scientific evidence, as compelling as that is. What started to change his mind was when he was in um, his residency. He was in the ward, I don't, Kelly, you've noticed, called, where people are basically waiting, waiting to die at the end of their life. What do you call that? Hospice. Thank you, you meant what I knew. They, he was in hospice care. My sister's a doctor, that's why I asked her. Um, he was in hospice care, and he saw people dying all around him. And as an atheist, he saw these Christians that would die with peace. They would die with a sense of comfort and a sense of hope differently than others around him. And it kind of shook him up to think about eternity a little bit. He got C.S. Lewis's book, got some other books, ended up committing his life to Christ and becoming a Christian. One of the great living scientists of our day came to believe in Jesus through the suffering of other Christians. That's why we never know how God is going to use some of the pain and suffering we go through because people are watching. People are watching. So if God is all-powerful, he can stop evil. Why on earth, if God is all good, he would want to? Why would he not want to? C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasure, but shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I think if we went around the room, some of you would say, it's times of tragedy, it's times of hurt. As difficult as that is, that maybe got your attention to think about eternal things. C.S. Lewis gave another example. He said, if you go to the dentist and the dentist is hurting you, you can't say, oh, aren't you a good dentist? Please stop the pain. It might be because the dentist is good that he's rooting out all the cavity for your best, even though it hurts. Pastor Timothy Keller, he said, if you have a God great enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world. Then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it. To continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. So the question is, if God is so good, why would he allow there to be evil? Why would he allow there to be suffering? How many of you know who Dave Dravecki is? By show of hands. Remember Dave Dravecki? great baseball player, played for the Padres, fantastic. He was on his way to being an all-star. He was going to have a 20-win season. And Dave Dravecki was pitching one day, and he felt a lump in his arm. And this boy, man whose boyhood dream was to play professional baseball, got cancer and had to retire. But then he went back, and he had the lump removed from it. He came back to baseball. And 
A lot of you probably remember the story. He was the great, he was the comeback kid. Dave Dravecki is here and he is going to, you know, he's going to help the Padres get all these wins, etc. Well, he's pitching again. And it was the second, second or third game of the season. He throws it and all of a sudden his arm snaps in half. I mean, again, don't YouTube it. I mean, his arm, you just see it. And it's like, oh my goodness, you just get shrill seeing what happened to him. He was forced to retire and they severed his arm right at the, he lost his complete arm and was done. And he described how he went into depression, how he went into suffering, how he was hurting for the longest time, wondering why God did this to him. He goes on Barbara Walter's show and she asked him point blank. She said, why would God do this to you? I mean, can you imagine being asked that question? That's a painful question. Why would God do this to you? And on national TV, he says, I don't know why God did this to me. I don't have a simple answer. But then when we interviewed him, he stopped and said, what I realized is that this was God, in a sense, getting my attention. And this is Dave speaking about his life. He said, I had a choice to make. I could make the choice to despair, or I could make the choice to trust God. And then he said how he went through counseling. It was difficult. But at the very end, he said something that just gave me goosebumps. He said, God has used in this, my life so much that I thank God for cancer. Now, those are difficult words. I don't hear too many people praying saying that. <laughs> but Dave said, he said, I thank God for cancer. Now, you might not be there in your life. <laughs> now, I'm not trying to say if you're a good Christian, you would feel that. I just want you to see Dave's experience and how God used that in his life to transform his character and bring other people into the kingdom. Maybe because God is good, he allows us to suffer. And that's kind of a scary thing to say, isn't it? Because I don't want to suffer. I know you don't want to suffer. Nobody wants to invite it in ourselves. But maybe God is more interested in the type of person we become and our eternal destiny than our comfort and what we think is success in this life. So if God is all-powerful, he could stop evil. Yeah, he could. But even God can't create a world in which we have free choice and then determine that we always do good. Yes, if God is all good, he would want to stop evil, and again, he will. But we can see maybe God has reasons for allowing it, and he will redeem it ultimately because he is good. But there's something unique that Christianity offers to this that no other religion can offer to the problem of evil. Because if you look at the great symbols of world religions, for example, look at the crescent. Oops. Look at the crescent over here for Islam, the crescent and the star. You have the star David. You have this gate kind of for Shintoism into the other realm. And then you have the little Buddha who looks pretty happy. What's the symbol for Christianity? This is the participatory part of the program. <laughs> this, exactly. It's the cross. Now think about that. The defining characteristic and symbol for our faith is a God who suffers. It's not a God who's ran from evil. It's not a God who's just sent a prophet down or just sent a book down. 
or God who just, you know, sent an angel down to fix it. It's a God who rolls up his sleeves, so to speak, and steps right into our world to experience the evil, to experience the suffering, and then ultimately redeem it for good. So when people say, where is God when I was suffering? Part of the answer is God is right there suffering with you. Have you ever thought about the fact that we worship and follow a suffering God? And that's what the scriptures teach. I mean, this passage is, oh, it just, these passages amaze me. It says in Isaiah 53, the prophet said the coming Messiah would be a man of sorrows familiar with suffering. The Messiah would suffer and understand. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tested in every way as we are, yet is without sin. So you can't say to God, if you're suffering, pray to Jesus and go, Oh, Jesus, my body hurts so badly, you don't understand. And Jesus is going, Yeah, I was crucified. I Actually, I get it. You're betrayed by a friend or a relationship's broken. You can't pray to Jesus and say, oh, you wouldn't un- understand this person betrayed me and stabbed me in the back. And he's thinking, yeah, one of my disciples who I poured my life into for three years betrayed me. His own family rejected him. We worship and follow a God who understands and who has experienced and has sympathy for our suffering. In the 1800s, there's a man by the name of Father Damien. And he was a priest. And he couldn't believe that people in Molokai who were dying of leprosy would be left alone to die themselves. So Father Damien, by his own volition, a healthy middle-aged man, went into Molokai, one of the islands on the end, the back of Hawaii. There was a leper colony. And he started to care for these lepers. He would pray for them. He would feed them. He would dress their wounds. He would preach to them. He would dig graves and he would bury some of them. For years, he worked as their minister to take care of them. But then one day, he gave a message to the group of lepers that changed everything. He stood up before him one Sunday morning and he opened up his coat and he said, We lepers. He had the first signs of leprosy. Here's my question. Did they love and appreciate him before he got leprosy? Yeah. Do you think they even loved and appreciated him more after he got leprosy? Yeah, because he paid a price for it. The question is, is Jesus more like Father Damien before he got leprosy or after? And it's after, isn't it? God has not left us to our pain. He sent his son down to die on the cross, taking the penalty that we deserved, experiencing the full weight of human temptation, human suffering. So number one, he can have a relationship with us. And number two, to forgive us for our sins. That's a powerful God. You only see that in Christianity. Every other God is distant The Christian God gets his hands dirty and takes our suffering upon himself. That's powerful. But that's not the end of the story. I love the story of Joseph. Because in the story of Joseph, he gets betrayed, he gets thrown in prison, 
He's thrown into slavery. And yet when his brothers finally come back and see him, and they realize, oh my goodness, and the weight of their guilt after all these years comes upon them, what does Joseph say? At the very end, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Yes, there's evil around us. I don't understand it all. I can't explain the way. I don't know why God allows certain things. And as Christians, our response is to cry and to hurt and to care for those who suffer. But I know this. A few weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. The darkest moment for the life, seeming moment for the life of the disciples was when Jesus was arrested and crucified. All their dreams were shattered because they thought he was a false prophet. But the reality is, when they thought things were least in control, God was doing his greatest good. That's why Paul can say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? God, I thank you for this morning that we can look at this question, this sensitive, difficult question of why there's evil, why there's suffering. God, we don't always understand, but we know that you're good. We know you're in control. We know you have reasons that go beyond what we can grasp. And we know that you care for us. God, I so pray if there's people here this morning and they have experienced the weight of evil, they have suffered in some way, that wrap your comforting arms around them. Help them to just know that you love them and you care for them and just give them the ability to just work through this trusting you even as much as it hurts. God, thank you that we can ask tough questions and not be afraid as Christians to seek after truth. We love you and we praise in your name. Amen.